We're going to be in John chapter 3. I'm going to start in John chapter 2. Uh, this is one of those situations where the, uh, the text breaks uh, in, uh, the chapter breaks in the text uh, don't exactly line up uh, with the flow of the story. And so we left off in John chapter 2. Uh, verse 23, that's where we're going to be picking it up. And um, just by way of introduction to our text today, you know, I'm reminded, uh, you know, I used to be a paramedic. And um, uh, years, years ago, uh, we had a situation where we had a call in uh, the city of Paris. And actually, uh, that particular day, um, there uh, was a, a batch of heroin that was uh, floating through the community, and uh, it was particularly strong, and uh, it was a form of uh, black tar heroin. And there were addicts all over the city that were overdosing on heroin. And heroin is one of those drugs that when you overdose on it, uh, it has a nasty side effect. It causes you to stop breathing. And uh, obviously that's a life-threatening situation. Uh, Ten minutes or so makes the difference between life and death. And so on this particular morning, we had already been on two or three heroin overdose calls, and then we were dispatched to yet another one. And when we arrived on scene, uh, it was really a tragic situation that we got there and man, there's this young kid, I mean, just, you know, teenager, and he had overdosed on heroin. He was in his front yard, and he was in respiratory arrest. He was not breathing. And his whole family was there, and, and uh, the engine crew had beat us in. And uh, so they were there, and everybody was, was stressed to the hilt. Uh, family screaming and crying, and, and you can well imagine. And, uh, and again, this is probably our third call of the day um, for, for dealing with this. And so when we got there, uh, the, engine, uh, the engineer uh, greeted us in, 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 uh, you know, very stressfully, hey, this kid's not breathing. And uh, so, you know, we're okay, we're on top of it. Now, um, as paramedics, we're equipped with, with various drugs to counteract uh, different situations. And, and there's uh, a drug that we carry, it's called Narcan, and it reverses the effects of narcotics, heroin, methadone, Darvon, Percodan, that, those kind of drugs. And, uh, and so what it does, it reverses the effects. And, and so um, for us, we know, hey, we just got to be, you know, bag this kid, give it, just breathe for him while we start an IV and we're going to give the heroin and, and, or give the Narcan and he'll, uh, he'll come out of it. And, uh, and so, again, for us, this is just Tuesday. We've been doing this, you know, for a lot, <laughs> especially that day. So anyway, we get there, and, and, uh, and so, you know, we, we start the IV, and, uh, and, you know, I push the Narcan, and uh, my partner decides he's going to have a little fun with the situation and uh, knowing what's about to happen. And so family screaming, crying, everybody's hysterical. My partner now places his hand on this kid's forehead and he says, arise and be healed. And right on cue, man, the Narcan starts taking effect and this kid starts coming around and says, oh, he's waking up. And the family is screaming, it's a miracle, it's a miracle, you know? And uh, made, made for a chuckle, and of course, you know, by God's grace, this, this, this kid was saved. Now, it wasn't a miracle. It may be a miracle of modern medicine, um, but certainly not a miracle. But here's the fact. The fact remains that without intervention, this kid would be dead. 
And in our text today, I tell you that story because we are reminded in our text today that every person on the face of the earth is in the same condition as that kid. They're just not aware of it. That they, all of us, are dead men in desperate need of rescue. We need intervention. And John chapter 3, as we get into it, is our answer. It is our rescue. Charles Spurgeon said of John chapter 3, he said, if I were asked to share something with a dying man who did not know the gospel, John chapter 3 would be the most suitable for such an occasion. And what is good for dying men is good for us all, for that is what we are. And how soon we may actually be at the gates of death, none of us can tell. And so we pick up the text where we left off a few weeks ago in John chapter 2. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the feast of uh, Passover. And uh, in verse 23, it tells us when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which Jesus did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. You know, leading up to uh, this visit, and, and apparently during this visit to Jerusalem, during the Passover feast, Jesus performed many miracles. And the people were so amazed, we just read in verse 23, that many believed in his name. And initially, if you just read verse 23, you would think, well, you know, that seems to suggest that, you know, they came to a saving faith in Jesus. And of course, the, the, the next couple of verses, verse 24 and verse 25, uh, tell us, no, that's, that's not what happened. Um, that that the people were there and they they were you know amazed at the at the miracles that Jesus was performing the works that Jesus was performing they wondered but they didn't worship and that's the key uh, the, the key thing for us to see here uh, Hebrews eleven six says without faith it's impossible. To please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Listen, this is the basic faith required of anybody who seeks after God. We must believe that God exists and we must diligently seek after him. And so the question then becomes, how? How do we seek after God? Now, this is the question that every religion hinges on. Uh, you know, if you're in the Mormon religion, uh, you know, how do you seek after God? Well, they would tell you that you seek after God by uh, a phrase they call doing the good. And that simply means that, that you have to do a lot of good works in order to be right with God and to seek after God. Uh, if you're in the Muslim religion, uh, then they would say that you seek after God by obeying the Quran. Uh, if you're in the Jewish religion, they would say that you seek after God by obeying the Old Testament law and obeying the prophets. Uh, and the one thing that all of these religions that I've just mentioned have in common, and so many other religions uh, in the world, is that they are a works-based system where you find salvation 
in God through your human effort. But listen, Christianity is different than every other religion on the face of the earth because Christianity is not based on your works. It's not based on what you do. It's based on the work that Jesus did. And this is the lesson now uh, that we have as we come to John chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And you see how that's set up. John chapter 2, verses 23, 24, 25. It says uh, that Jesus in the past, you know, in Jerusalem during the Passover feast, many believed in his name, but he did not commit himself to them because he knew all men uh, and he had no need that anyone should testify of man because he knew what was in man. And now John chapter three, verse one, there was a man uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And so chapter two ends with people marveling at Jesus's works. And now chapter three picks up with Nicodemus here. He's similarly impressed and He's marveling at Jesus' work. He comes to him by night, and we can only speculate why he came by night. Uh, it's been speculated maybe he came at night because he didn't want the other uh, religious leaders to know what was going on, what he was doing. Uh, maybe he came at night because he wanted to have more time to spend talking to Jesus. Um, but here he comes, and Nicodemus, understand, he's a Pharisee, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, this, the Sanhedrin was the ruling religious body in Israel, and, and uh, Nicodemus playing a very key role, um, a very high-placed person. And listen, understand, if it were possible to be justified by the law, by the, the keeping of the law and by good works, listen, Nicodemus would certainly qualify. He would be at the head of the list. Being a Pharisee, understand that uh, he spent his entire life working to keep every aspect of the law. And like most Jews of his time, he believed that he was saved by virtue of his ancestry and by virtue of his action. Uh, his ancestry, he was a son of Abraham. And so he believed that that relationship that he had to Abraham made him acceptable to God, made him part of this, this chosen group of people. As well, he thought his actions uh, set him apart and made him acceptable to God. He was a Pharisee. And, and so Pharisees, they practiced very strict religious adherence in every aspect of their life. And so when Nicodemus comes here to, to meet with Jesus, here's what you got to understand. What you have to understand is that he's not looking to be saved when he comes to see Jesus because he says, hey, we, we know you're a teacher come from God. And by the way, he's more than a teacher. He is God. But he says, we know you're a teacher come from God. You do all these signs. Nobody could do these signs unless they come from God. And, and he comes to him, not looking for him to, to save him, but because hey, he thinks he's got that locked down. 
right? He comes to Jesus because he's looking for the promised Messiah and the, the, the idea of what the Messiah would bring. He, he's, you know, saying, hey, I want to know if you're the Messiah, the one who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel and set everything in order. And so the basic idea here when Nicodemus comes to Jesus is he's saying, hey, Jesus, we see the signs you do. Are you the guy? Are you, are you this guy we, we should be looking to? That's the idea. Verse 3, Jesus answered and he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, and he's talking to Nicodemus here, my, you know, you can see him putting his finger in his chest. Here's what I say to you. Uh, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus right here is, look, hey, you've come thinking that you're right with God. And you've come looking for the kingdom to to be restored to Israel. Listen, not only isn't that what I came to, I didn't come to restore the kingdom to Israel. But listen, you aren't even saved. You have to be born again. And that phrase born again literally means born from above. Uh, And uh, now let me just stop right there and put yourself in Nicodemus's shoes and just how shocking that would be to you. I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, somebody coming to a pastor of a church saying, hey, look, you know, you you don't even, you're not even saved kind of thing, you know? And so here's a guy who spent his whole life working good, trying harder, doing everything that he can to to be right with God. and, And now all of a sudden you get this shock like, hey, dude, you need to be born again. Right? This is a shock to this guy. And so Nicodemus says to, to Jesus, verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, and Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. Now that word marvel, literally, it means to be filled with wonder and amazement. And that's exactly what's going on in Nicodemus's heart right now. This is what he's experiencing. He's, he is filled with wonder and amazement. It, 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 you know, it, it's a, it, it takes, takes your breath away kind of thing because it's inconceivable to him that he would be outside the kingdom. Understand, Nicodemus spent his entire life seeking after God. He was zealous, he he did good works, he was as righteous as anybody could possibly be. This is the guy that you would choose to be the executor of your will. Guys, this is the guy that you would choose if you were going out of town on business. This is the guy you would say, hey, would you watch after my wife and kids while I'm gone? I mean, you would trust this man to this level. And what Jesus says to him is, hey, you're not good enough. You, you, you think you're going to heaven, dude. You need to, to, to check your spiritual pulse because you need to be born again. Now, Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5. He said to them, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now the idea here isn't, hey, you guys got to work hard and you need to try and do everything you can to be more righteous than the Pharisees. That's, that's not the point. The point is, hey, moral or religious reform is not enough. You can do good and try harder till the cows come home. It's not going to get you there. You have to be born again. Now, think about it. The thing about being born is that you have no control over it. You have no control over being born. You were born because your parents conceived you and they, they brought you into this world. I'm reminded of that comedian who looked at his kids and he says, look, I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. And it doesn't make any difference to me because I'll make another one that looks just like you, you know? And, and so, listen, understand regarding the new birth it's the same thing, that you have no control over this new birth any more than you have control over being born. You don't have any control over the new birth either. Listen, if Jesus had said, hey, unless you were washed, you know, Nicodemus comes to him and, and Jesus said, you have to be born again. You must be born again. But if he had used a different word, if he had said to him, hey, unless you were washed, you can't see the kingdom of God. Well, then, you know, Nicodemus might have thought, well, I can wash myself. That's something I can do, right? Yeah, you might be able to wash yourself, but you can't birth yourself. And this is what Jesus is saying. Look, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. And then Jesus adds this. Look again at verse 5. He says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we understand being born of the Spirit, but what does it mean here to be born of water? Well, there's, there's, there's several different uh, takes on this. Some will say that being born of water is referring to water baptism. And uh, there, there are those that will make a very strong argument um, uh, for that. Uh, there are those that say being born of water uh, is talking about your physical birth, that when you're in the womb, you're in the amniotic fluid there in the, in the sack, the amniotic sac, and, and, and you're encased in water, and uh, that Jesus is saying, hey, you know, you, you, have, to, uh, you have to be born, you know, uh, of, uh, you know, the natural birth, and then you have to have a spiritual birth. And, and this might, you know, you, you look at verse 6 when he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You might go, okay, it, it, he's talking about you, you're born of the flesh, you're born of the water, that way you're born of water, and then you're born of the spirit in the new uh, in the new birth, in the, the, the being born again, the birth from above. Um, and so there are those that say it has to do with the physical birth, but really I think a, a really good case could be made for what he's talking about here is that being born of water refers to the water of the word of the gospel. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 24, he said, and this gospel of the kingdom, and this is the subject here that he's talking to Nicodemus about, the kingdom and, and being accepted in the kingdom. Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, this same message is connected to Old Testament prophecy, this message of the water of the word. Um, Nicodemus, remember, he's the teacher in Israel. Jesus is going to make that distinction very clear here in just a, in just a minute. 
Um, but he, he's a prominent teacher, and so he would know well the Old Testament scriptures. And in Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27, uh, Ezekiel prophesied this. This is God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel, and, and he's speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, For I will gather you up from all the nations, and I will bring you home again to your land. And then I will sprinkle, here it is, clean water on you, and you will be clean. The, the, the water of the gospel. Uh, of Jesus Christ. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. The Bible says if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And so this is the promise. And he, Ezekiel continues, I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and I will give you a tender, responsive heart, this new creation. Uh, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. Listen, the idea is this, that when the gospel is received, listen, it cleanses you and it ushers in the birth of the Spirit. And then Jesus adds this in verse 8. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, Jesus here in verse 8, He's making two points of illustration for Nicodemus. Number one, he's saying, just as you have no control over being born, you also have no control over the wind. And, and this point reiterates the fact that salvation comes as a result of God's work. It doesn't come as a result of your work, of your attaining a right standing with God. The second point of illustration that Jesus is making in verse 8 is that, listen, although you can't see the wind you can see the effects of the wind. And the idea is that when you are born again, you will see the effects of this being a new creation in your life. And if you've been walking with Jesus for any length of time after you've received Christ and have been born again, what you see is that the promise of the New Testament that if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation, that old things pass away, behold, all things become new. Listen, you should be able to look in the rearview mirror of your life and you should be able to see that God has changed you and that the, the, the person that you used to be it is a vague memory because God has changed you and he has transformed you and he is, he is working out his righteousness in you as you grow in the faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> well, the idea is, listen, when you're born again, you see the effects in your life, just as God promised in Ezekiel 36. Now, this would be a good time for us just to hit the pause button and just to consider do you see the effects of God in the rearview mirror of your life? Do you see the effects of God? Just as you can't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind, do you see the effectual working of God in your life? Now, taking both of these points together here in verse 8, the idea that Jesus is conveying is this. Look, you don't understand everything about the wind, but you see its effects. And that's just how it is with the birth of the Spirit. You, do, you, don't, you don't see it, you don't understand everything about it, but you see its effects. So often, you know, people will reject God 
because they don't understand all the intricacies of God. Uh, the, the, their attitude is, look, if I, if I can't understand everything about God, then I'm not going to believe in God. Listen, that's contradictory to how you live your life in many ways. I'll illustrate it with a couple of simple illustrations. You know, um, I'm not a car guy. Some of you are car guys, and God bless you. That's amazing. Um, I'm not. Um, so so I, I get the basics of a car and the dynamics of it. I understand that there's internal combustion and that there's gears and all, and you put it in drive, and, you know, it creates power, and you go. Beyond that, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not very good, right, uh, at understanding these things. But that doesn't keep me from getting in a car and driving in a car right? I don't know how to fly an airplane. Uh, I don't know, understand all the intricacies of, of all the technical aspects that happen in an airplane, but that doesn't keep me from getting into an airplane, right? And, and it's the same way with the things of the Spirit, right? You, you don't understand everything about God. It's been said if God was small enough for us to understand, He wouldn't be big enough for our problems, right? And so you're never going to understand everything. And that's certainly where Nicodemus is here. He still doesn't understand. Look at verse 9. He says, he answers, he says to Jesus, how can these things be, right? I just don't get it. And Jesus answered and he said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't, you don't know these things? I mean, Jesus is like, dude, I, I've kind of, I've given, I've given you very clearly uh, the Old Testament, you know, example here that you're the teacher, you should get this. He, he says, you don't know these things? Most assuredly, verse 11, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Who's the we? Uh, well, it's Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the disciples who are preaching the gospel as well. We, we speak what we know and testify uh, and what we have seen, and the we have seen specifically, this is talking about God and the, the things that he has seen. He says, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Hey, look, this is 101 stuff, man. I, I, I can't get to the deeper truths of, of what it means to know and to walk with God. You, got, you, can't, you can't go to the deeper things until you're born again. You got to get this, right? He says, no one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. What Jesus is saying here is, look, you know, I'm uniquely qualified to tell you things about the kingdom of God because, because I'm from there and nobody else is from there to tell you these things, but I am. And he says, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so Nicodemus here, he's dumbfounded. How can these things be? Jesus is like, dude, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't get this. And so what Jesus does here is, again, he's, he's trying to help Nicodemus out. So what he does is he tells Nicodemus a story from Numbers 21, and this is a story that Nicodemus would have heard from childhood. Now, the story that he's referring to is Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Here's the, here's the backstory in that. Basically, in Numbers chapter 21, the, the, the Israelites are, they're, they're in the exodus from Egypt, they're on their way to the promised land, they're wandering through the wilderness, and um, they're plagued with unbelief. 
and their unbelief is causing them to murmur and to complain. They're complaining against Moses. They're complaining against God. And, and so basically, you know, they're, they're saying things like, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? Um, you know, we've got no bread. We've got no water. All we've got is this manna stuff, and we're sick of manna and, and, and all that. Just these unbelieving hearts. And so what God did to deal with their sin of unbelief was he sent serpents into their midst, into their camp, and the Israelites were being bitten by these poisonous serpents. And they're crying out to Moses now, saying, intercede, call to God, have him, you know, have him deliver us from, from these fiery serpents that are, that are biting us. Now, what God did was he had mercy and he had compassion. And he told Moses to take a bronze serpent, uh, an image of a certain serpent made out of bronze, to put it on a pole and to raise it up. And he told him, uh, tell all the Israelites who have been bitten by these serpents to look to that bronze serpent up on the pole and they will be healed. Now, this is all a picture of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. A serpent represents sin in the Bible. And bronze was a, was a metal that had to be forged and formed in the fire. And so a bronze serpent was a, was a symbol of judgment, right? And putting on a, a pole and, and, you know, raising it up, this is a picture of Jesus who would become sin for us. The Bible says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so this is the idea that this Old Testament picture was always intended to point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That sin would be judged on the cross in Jesus, that he would be raised up. And so when Jesus gives to, to uh, Nicodemus here this illustration, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and then ultimately being lifted up in his resurrection into heaven, in his ascension into heaven. And so this is the idea that um, God is doing this work to point to Jesus. And so Jesus now telling Nicodemus, dude, this is the idea that I've come to, to be that sacrifice for sin. And I want you to think about this illustration. How were the people saved? They weren't saved by doing any work to, to earn forgiveness of their sin. How were they saved? They didn't do anything. They simply had to look. They, had, they simply had to look to that judgment of sin raised up on that pole. Look to that bronze serpent and they would be saved. Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 45, 22 said, Look to me. This is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Here's your application today. Listen, God wants to save you. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God wants to save you today. And, and he simply wants you to look 
to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him uh, endured the cross, despising its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what the Bible says. That means that Jesus has died for our sins. He is now at this moment at the right hand of the throne of God. And in Romans chapter 8, it tells us what he's doing there. He's praying for you. He's praying for me by name. Today, you can know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you're within the sound of my voice and you've never surrendered to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never been born again, you can do that today simply by looking to the Lord. And you know, the interesting thing about this story is that there were those who wouldn't look. They, they, they just thought, oh, this is just, this is ridiculous. I'm what, I'm just supposed to look at this bronze serpent and I'm going to be healed? It's too simple. And people will say that about, about receiving Christ as the Lord and Savior. I mean, I, I feel like I need to do something, right? When I was a kid, my dad uh, was in the four-wheel drive industry, and this product Armor All had just come out. And my dad had gallon jugs of it all over the place, and, uh, and it, was, it was just a new thing. And, and I saw all this, and I was always interested in making a buck, and I'm like, hey, can I take this product and go and sell it? And my dad said, sure, you can do that. And I said, he said, I'll make you a distributor. And I said, okay, great. What do I need to do? And he said, nothing. I, I just made you a distributor. You can go sell this stuff. And I'm like, no, but, but what do I need to do? There's something, is, there's something I need to do, right? And my dad's like, you don't have to do anything. I just made you a distributor. Knock yourself out. Go sell. You're an armor all distributor. Go, go distribute it right? It's the same thing with salvation. People say, oh gosh, it, it's too simple. What, I'm just to look to Jesus and I'll be saved? It's too simple. That's the gospel, my friends, that you, yes, there is repentance that's indicated. The Bible teaches that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And the Bible teaches that, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what, what do we need to be, do to be saved? We need to repent. It simply means to turn. And, and turning is this, that you acknowledge, you recognize, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. And that you simply turn and say to the Lord Jesus, save me. And he will. He will save you. And the thing is, is that he does the work. You don't have to do the work. He does the work. In the Gospels, we read the story about Jesus coming into the town of Nain. And as he's coming into the town, what's happening is there's a funeral procession and you've got this widow and she's grieving the death of her only son and she has no other family and she's destitute. Who's gonna take care of me? And oh, my son is dead. And what did Jesus do? He walked up and he said to the man in the coffin, arise. And he raised that man from the dead. Let me ask you a question. What could that man do to be saved? And the answer is nothing. He was dead. And likewise, you and me, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus, he will raise us up. Well, now we come to John 3.16. For God, Jesus continues, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God came to give everlasting life. This is the heart of God. People see God as an angry God, as a God of vengeance. Listen, there is a day coming 
when Jesus will return to the earth, and when Jesus returns to the earth, he will come to pour out the wrath of God. But listen, Jesus' first coming was not to pour out God's wrath. It was to pour out God's love. And Jesus did this by his long-suffering love for, for you and for me, by giving his life as a ransom for many. By dying on the cross, the Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus here, God loves you, God wants to save you, and it requires belief. And listen, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he talks about everlasting life. And understand, when, when Jesus says here, uh, uh, in, um, in, in, in these verses that he came uh, to give eternal life or everlasting life. The understanding that we need to have is not only in reference to, to quantity of years, that we're going to have everlasting life, that we're going to live forever with God, but it's also in quality. It's in quality. The psalmist said this, Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so God promises everlasting life. And Jesus says, God so loved the world. And this would have blown Nicodemus's mind because Nicodemus and the Jews uh, they weren't only wrong about the way of salvation. They thought, hey, we're going to get right with God by our keeping of the law, by our works. So they were wrong about the way of salvation, but they were also wrong about the scope of salvation. Because Jesus is saying here, listen, the gospel saves everybody. It saves Jew and it saves Gentile alike. You know, some people say to me, you know, gosh, if, if I go to church, you don't understand, I'll get struck by lightning. Some people will say to me, look, Ted, you don't understand what I've done. God can't forgive me. And I say to them, listen, you don't understand what God in the person and work of Jesus Christ has done. That's what you don't understand. God knows all about you. He knows every hair on your head. The Bible says the hairs on your head are numbered. God knows your comings and your goings, your rising up, your laying down, everything in between. And the fact of the matter is God still loves you, and he wants to save you. Isaiah the prophet said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But listen, there are some who cannot be saved. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned Already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, right? That condemnation, it is on every person on the face of the earth because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are a dead man walking. You are a dead woman walking apart from Jesus Christ. And so the only hope is to be born again by the Spirit of God. This is the idea. Verse 19, Jesus says, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come into the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Listen, this is just human nature. 
It's the human nature that, you know, that you do wrong, you want to hide. You, you know, you, you go to a bar, all the lights are out, it's dark. Right? People, people are hiding in darkness, right? And, uh, and, and you know, you, you turn on the lights, the cockroaches scurry, the rats scurry, right? But Jesus says in verse 21, he who does the truth, that word does, it, it, it's uh, poio in the Greek, it means literally to abide. He who abides in the truth, he who lives in the truth, comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen, that uh, they have been done in God. Listen, when he says here in verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. That word believes, it literally means to place your confidence in. He who places his confidence in the Lord is the idea. And it's written in verb form and it communicates an action. Listen, belief goes beyond a mere intellectual belief, right? Jesus said that even the demons believe, right? And they tremble, right? Uh, and, and so the, the, the fact of the matter is an intellectual belief isn't going to save you. It has to get from your head to your heart to your hands. There has to be a working out of your salvation, not working for your salvation. There has to be a transformation, and so it has to go to, belief requires an intentional action that I'm going to place my full trust in the Lord. Let me illustrate it this way. Back in the late 1800s, there was a uh, tightrope walker, famous guy named Charles Blondin. And uh, he was famous for tightrope walking across the, uh, the Niagara Falls. And uh, he would, uh, on one occasion, he took a wheelbarrow and he walked across the falls pushing a wheelbarrow. And he got to the other side and he asked this large cr crowd, everybody cheering him. He says, how many of you believe that I could put a man in this wheelbarrow and walk back across? And everybody said, oh, we believe, we believe. And he says, which one of you wants to get in the wheelbarrow and go back across with me? And finally, one man did step up and he got in the wheelbarrow and they went back across and they fell to their death. No, they didn't. They went back across and he got safely to the other side. And this is the idea that, that belief requires that we get in the wheelbarrow with Jesus. That's the, that's the attitude. That's the, that's the idea. Well, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, and I want to draw to a close with this, here's what we read. And if you were with us when we started this Gospel, you'll remember this. It says, But as many as received him, as many as received Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. They were born from above. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you received him today? Because you must be born again. Isaiah the prophet said this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Three questions as we close today. Number one, have you been born again? Have you been born again? Now this is one of those common phrases that can lose its meaning. So, so listen, I want you to take a walk with this. Nicodemus, a man, religious man, head 
of, of, of uh, so many people and such a pillar in his community. And he had to come face to face with the fact that, dude, yours is not the kingdom of heaven right now because you've not been born again. Have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Number two, can you see the effects of it? I want you to take a walk with that this week. Can I see the effects of a born-again relationship with God in the way that I'm living my life? And, and here's my third point. And man, I want to ask you, are you sharing that truth with others? Guys, we are living in a desperate age. We are living in a dark hour. And the time is urgent. Right now, we see a world that is collapsing and in chaos and falling apart. And here's what people need to hear more than anything else. There is a God in heaven that loves them. There is a God in heaven that loves you. And God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Do you know him today? Do you know him?